Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guests are Jake Rudin and Aaron Pellegrino to talk about their book, Out of Architecture. Aaron Pellegrino and Jake Rudin co-founded Out of Architecture in 2018. And Out of Architecture is a career consulting firm helping architects and designers find challenging and creatively fulfilling roles beyond the bounds of traditional architectural practice. Thank you both for being here with me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. So before we begin, can you both tell us a little bit more about yourselves? Sure. I think we uh, started off, you know, on this journey towards Out of Architecture uh while we were still in architecture, obviously, um, most architects go through a kind of professional schooling. We were no different. Both Aaron and I attended Cornell University for our bachelor's of architecture degrees and absolutely loved the architectural education, the studio based education, the style, the variety of work and skills. It was really just something mind blowing and incredible. And actually, that's the that's the first section of the book is a celebration of kind of this unique uh, learning, unique skills that architects take on at the start of their career. Um, myself personally, uh, after school, uh, went to do a master in design technologies at Harvard. Uh, the graduate school of design was a pretty interesting place and was a, a great opportunity. I always thought I'm, I'm going to be an academic. I know it. I, I'm going to stay in. I'm going to make beautiful dissertations and, and become a you know tenured professor. Uh, none of that happened, but uh, I did learn a lot on that journey. And uh, in doing so, I think, you know, always had in the back of my mind that um, I would return to academia either as an instructor or uh, you know, in, in some form. And what I didn't realize was that I would continue to return to that idea of this, the education of an architect, um, very frequently. And, and in doing so, um, I started to question, you know, what it was that we learned and how we were applying it in the profession. Uh, after school, I had a, a series of kind of interesting experiences, many of which are documented in the book, um, that pointed me in the very clear direction that uh, I, you know, I I was really experiencing um, a pretty strong disconnect between what I learned in school and what I was being asked to put into practice. So ultimately, um, I just made the decision to pursue a couple of other opportunities. Um, very early on, I worked for a young tech startup. And after that, uh, moved out to the West Coast and started working for Adidas. I really never planned on working in footwear, but I was shocked that all of the 3D skills that I had learned in school, all of the model making, drafting, all of these topics that I thought were pretty specific to architecture were actually applicable in a huge variety of fields. So 
Knowing that, I've now been at Adidas for six years. I run a computational design and pattern engineering team. And for architects, it's basically 2D and 3D CAD. Uh, and it's an absolute blast. I get to work with specialists and contractors just like I would have in the AEC world, except they are specialists in sports science and sports medicine and physics and engineering and mechanical engineering. And it is uh, a really unique confluence of uh, all of the things that I had the opportunity to start learning in architecture. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. So I, um, I, I can't feel like I kind of embody that jack of all trades, uh, master of none, um, uh, sort of trope, but I essentially, and, and I'll preface this with Jake and I both, um, did our undergrad at Cornell and, and our grad degree at, at Harvard, although our, our graduate degrees differed, um, in their tracks. So there's a lot of overlap in our initial sort of inception of how we, how we came to be familiar with architecture, how we fell in love with it. Um, and then also, you know, our, our, our own separate crises <laughs> around, um, around what it may mean when we entered, you know, what people told us at the time was the, the real world. Um, I essentially went into architecture school, really not knowing what I was getting into, but absolutely loving it as soon as I got there. The the intensity, the passion, the sense of community and camaraderie, um, and this sort of new way of learning. I was one of those kids who, who in school, I, I did well, but I really just didn't want to be there. I think I missed an entire year when you tallied it up of, of middle school because I just didn't like going. Um, so this new way of learning and engaging with people was, was just amazing to me. Um, I, similar to Jake, became, you know, kind of equally, uh, I guess shocked is maybe the word, when I realized that once I was meant to kind of go into, into traditional practice, somehow that, you know, that passion, that intensity, uh, the quick turnaround, the, the sort of love for what you do was really sort of dampened in some ways. And then the intensity was again, intensified in others. Um, and I actively just sort of rebelled that things didn't have to maybe be that way. So I always knew I wanted to, to get the title and, and be an architect and build things. I'm just someone who's always loved making, um, even from a, a really young age. I just liked putting things together and see them physically manifest. Um, and I got really frustrated when I went into the, the professional world after my, my graduate degree. And I was working for a really great firm at the time. They treated me incredibly well. Um, and I just found myself kind of bored and realizing that all of the building and constructing and fabrication that I got to do in school, um, you know, that's just not really what architects typically do. Um, and even the the things I liked doing around that production, model making, drawing, ideating, um, somehow just the, the bloom was off the rose, I guess, and started to question, you know, how could I make, how could I make my way in architecture, combining all of the things I really love to do? Um, and that started for me back in grad school because I, I enjoyed taking classes outside of design school, um, I did the MRC II program at the GSD, which meant we did another sort of four design studios, and they were all great, and they were with amazing, you know, people I would consider uh, consider mentors. Um, and I really just I liked the idea of expanding that 
language. So I started taking classes over in the business school and the Kennedy School, which is the school of diplomacy, essentially. Um, and I got to see the value of, of architecture and architects and the way we think through the eyes of, you know, essentially people training to be politicians and diplomats and, and people training to be entrepreneurs and, and business people. And I got really into how they think and got really into the conversations we would have because all of a sudden I was the only architect in the room instead of one of uh, one of many in a room full of architects. So when I left the the GSD and found myself bored uh, in my my typical day job, I found myself pursuing more entrepreneurial uh, projects. Um, started working as a consultant for a series of startups in in design and started working for for VCs who were engaging in startups in the the architecture engineering and construction space and realized that there's a whole different way you can you can employ your design skills and your making skills to to create agency fast forward um, I run my own uh, small scale design build firm called matter where we do a sort of high low of um, of projects. Essentially, we do a lot of custom uh, homes and custom fabrication for people who are incredibly wealthy, who let us play around and have fun. And then we translate that to um, community-engaged projects and, and public interest design and essentially homes for the homeless um, and spaces for, for those who are, are, you know, a little bit more disenfranchised through a variety of scales. So I've found a way to kind of merge how I feel about making and thinking and the design process, but also a way to create agency that isn't the traditional around, you know, essentially a client comes to an architect and says, hey, I need a building, help me put this together. But rather we actually go out and try to make um, make partnerships and, and, and forge relationships in communities to understand what they need of their built environment and how we can contribute to that. Um, and along the way, I think Jake and I always had these conversations around, you know, why is, why is the vision of what it means to be an architect when you're in school uh, and even frankly in, in practice, why is it so limiting to this, this traditional approach when – Look, we're we're two people who are architecturally trained at arguably the super elitist and and fancy institutions that made us, you know, the best of the best, as they would say. And you know, why why are not more people doing more interesting things that we know may ignite their passions um, a bit more than than door schedules? <laughs> well, thank you. And so, my next question, I think you both touched on a little bit, but the question I always have is, you know, what brought about particularly the book, but I suppose even the company as well. And I can't, you know, I know every architect eventually questions being in architecture. So what, what made you finally write the book and kind of go forward with this? It's so funny that you make that comment that every architect eventually has this moment of questioning because it, it seems to be true. And it's funny that we sort of let that pass as a, uh, you know, almost a, a natural way of being, right? That we expect architects to be burned out. Uh, I think that is hugely detrimental to the industry that we allow that expectation to continue. Um, and what we noticed uh, very early into the inception of uh, out of architecture, you know, it wasn't even an idea for a business. It really was just how can we support our friends and colleagues and people who need, uh, you know, advice or, really just sometimes career therapy um, 
and how do we help them to achieve the goals that they were trying to achieve through architecture? I think what's incredible about architecture as an idea is that it embodies all of these creative disciplines in one. And truly, an architectural education is a design education. It is the best design education, in my opinion. And it has a host of avenues. I think we always think of architects as, you know, being able to be stereotyped at a kind of a young stage into, oh, you're the visualization person, you know, oh, you're the model maker, or you're the person who really likes doing master plans or infographics, or, you know, the person who's just really, for some reason, interested in coding, although architects don't really do that. And all of those skills applied to design out in the rest of the world have really specific titles, really specific roles, and are valued differently. I'm not going to say that that value is always about salary or compensation. Sometimes it's just an appreciation of a specific set of skills. And when we go into architecture, I think we all are striving for the title architect. And that pathway is very narrow. It almost always includes design skills, you know, an internship, moving up through the ranks, spending a specific period of years, right? I would say at a minimum three to get the experience needed, but often with exams and, and things, it can be 10 years very easily for someone to achieve that title. And along the way, we're expected to be generalists. We're expected to kind of, you know, put into practice these various skills that we've learned, but to be really good at all of them. And everyone is supposed to have all of those skills all of the time. What we found and what kind of started out of architecture was that people were really interested in doing the things that they loved, not necessarily doing everything. And a lot of the firms that people were working at expected them to do everything, expected them to be there for absurd hours, expected them to, to you know, keep a smile on their face, and then seemed shocked when people reached this stage of burnout, right? This questioning that you mentioned, Brian. And we had so many people starting to come to us when we took our individual pathways. You know, when I started working at Adidas, I had so many people reach out and just ask, you know, how, why would they hire you? You know, <laughs> and rather than taking offense to that question, um, I felt, you know, it was a really good one. You know, why would a sportswear company hire someone whose entire resume was built around architecture? And we began to realize that those, I mean, those skills are so transferable. They're so valuable. And more than anything, there are places out there that are looking for us to practice architecture in a different context for a different result than necessarily a, a single building or a fit out or as you know, I, I don't know why door schedules always <laughs> comes to the top of the list, but I think it's this, uh, this emblematic element of something that people don't typically enjoy doing that we're forced to do. And, and most jobs have some little piece of that, but 
I think the duration of architecture projects also causes these long periods of dissatisfaction where someone is, you know, maybe they don't like construction administration and they're in that role for a year and a half, you know, redlining and doing site visits. And maybe that's just not for them. So we started having all of these questions. We started having all of these people come to us and ultimately the amount of time that it was taking us uh, just necessitated that we sort of put in place some of the elements of a business, right? That we have a schedule, that we have availability, that we create space to have these conversations. Uh, and after five years, which is how long we've been in, in practice at Out of Architecture, uh, we now have a team of 10. We've got uh, five advisors that are supporting clients. We offer introductory calls multiple times a week. We have uh, now a book, obviously, and uh, are, you know, beginning to sort of see this cultural snowball effect around the excitement that people can continue to do what they love, uh, even if it is outside of the bounds of traditional practice. And maybe that's a, a good segue for me to let Aaron talk a little bit about how we started thinking specifically about the book. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we had always had this idea in our minds, too, of a way of, of codifying all the knowledge and conversations we were having. Um, we felt pretty lucky and privileged to be able to get to speak to so many people and help so many people. But, you know, the nature of our of our work is that it's, it's confidential. You know, this is a Jake jokes and we all joke that it's kind of career therapy, but you know, people come to us and share their, share their professional lives and sometimes their personal lives. And, and, you know, we want to be respectful of that, but at the same time we were privy and, and had access to this community of, of people that all really were speaking the same language and had the same concerns, um, but weren't connected to one another. And we also realized that there's a limit to our time. We turned off billing during the pandemic and, you know, we're inundated with all these great conversations, but Jake and I at the time were, were two people um, and we can't, we frankly can't talk to everybody and we charge for our services uh, for the most part. And we understand that it's not accessible to everybody. So what we really wanted to do was create a, a way to sort of tell those stories and a bit of a of, of a series of tools so that people didn't have to always come to us to understand why we existed and, and how we've been able to, to help people along the way and all these other amazing things that the people have done. So we started talking about a way that we can do this and landed on a book for a couple of reasons. Um, Jake is an avid book collector and has been for the entire time I've known him. Um, and I think, you know, we both have this idea of, of, uh, you know, the object fetish and wanting a physical manifestation again of the things that we do, um, or at least I do. And for us, a book seemed like a, a really great way to get that out there. It was a real struggle to to write. Um, it's hard to write a book with another person uh, on the other side of the, the country, but we essentially just started recording the conversations that Jake and I would have where we would really complain a little bit about the profession and also ideate on why we thought it was the way it was and how we could really I think create almost a thesis around why out of architecture exists and how are the ways that we help people. So essentially the book came from this, this 
idea that, you know, we're two people who are limited in our time and we want more, to be able to, to help more people. And we put it out there, you know, really in hopes of, of doing that. And the response has been amazing. We love when we get tagged on LinkedIn that someone's read something or a line that really resonated with them. Um, and we're also really open to feedback too and understanding how, you know, for the next one uh, or what else we could do to, to put these ideas out, out there and be helpful to people. Brian, I think also there's this element that, you know, maybe in 2023 doesn't seem quite as illicit, but at the time of writing the book, you know, when we started in 2020, these conversations were not nearly as frequent. You know, we hadn't had people suggesting that we unionize in architecture. You know, there wasn't as much open complaining. And for us, I think it felt critical to bring some of these conversations to the forefront one of the narratives in the book is about, you know, me threatening to get sued by an architecture firm for using work in my portfolio, you know, for trying to to say, look, this is work that I have done professionally. Um, you know, other narratives in there are about commentary from firm leaders that, you know, oh, this person is like... They, you know, they're the kind of person that would shoot up the office or horrendous things that, you know, that happen in this kind of like pool of, you know, oh, we're family. We're here all the time together. You know, you, you should be passionate and committed. Some of that, you know, has come to the forefront. And I'm really thankful that those narratives are there. But the book is also supposed to be a safe place to explore those ideas and we have had, as Aaron mentioned, people, you know, not only just publicly sort of touting that the book is, is supporting them, but these private messages with really intimate narratives and, and people sharing that, you know, this was one of the first places, the first times that they felt seen, you know, truly where they could, you know, they understood that someone else had had those experiences. And I think they're all too common. Yeah, and I would just jump in quickly and say that, unfortunately, you know, while the conversation has become much more pervasive and, and open, and I think we have the pandemic to, to thank for that, we also have people who are still telling us that the book has been amazing, but I'm afraid to follow you on Instagram or to, you know, connect with you on LinkedIn, because I don't want my employer or my friends to know that. I'm thinking about this. So it is still a, a sort of issue in the in the industry and in the profession where people feel, um, I guess I'll use the term disenfranchised, but also just scared of engaging with these. And, and I think that that's really sad, frankly. Uh, yeah, I suppose I should have thought of that when I asked about having you lecture at Alfred. <laughs> but anyways, uh, so a question, you bring up a good point about um, – and everyone at Alfred is excited. You brought up a good point about architecture school. You actually, I'm going to take a quote out of here. That architecture school makes great makers. And then you even mentioned that there's Harvard identified, and again, correct me if I'm butchering this. Harvard has identified 10 skills for business and architecture graduates have nine out of 10 in ACEs, but that's one they're completely lacking. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the one that they that somehow we, we teach the other nine great, but there's one that <laughs> we seem to be unteaching. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I think a lot of that one comes from, again, a bit nerding out when I was at, in grad school at, over over the business school and what they were teaching. But also, Jake and I would always constantly talk about about money and business and and entrepreneurial ideas. This is not the first business we've launched together. It just is the one that stuck around long enough. Um, 
but I think the one you're you're referring to, and, and we have a whole book chapter in the book on it called "The Insecure Overachiever," is, is really around confidence, um, and it, it, that's always been interesting to me, mainly because, and I'll, I'll speak anecdotally here, so this is really referencing my experience, which may not be everybody's. But when I went into architecture school and even when I met in my early internships and as a young professional, you just, you kind of are in awe of these, of these people. Um, They're brilliant. You know, I was, I mean, I was also a first generation college student, so I went to college and was in awe of pretty much everything. But I think, you know, there's a sort of air around architects as I was growing up that was one of confidence. and, And I think in, in, even in movies, sometimes even a little bit narcissistic. But in school, all of that has a tendency to get undone in a way. Yes, you need to stand up and and confidently present, or maybe not so confidently, present your projects and be consistently evaluated on your work. But somehow this idea that it is never done, um, that, you know, you may get a compliment, but oftentimes good or you know, ha- feedback that is is praise worthy is is often not helpful. So you begin to really look very much at critical feedback and constantly take criticism and be good at taking criticism, and feeling as though you are you are able to let's say suffer for for your art and and really I think it breeds a couple of unhealthy mentalities towards. The work that we do, feeling like, you know, we have to be or we should feel lucky to be able to get a project or, or do the work that we get to do, as opposed to being someone who has value and, and can confidently stand behind the work that they do. I mean, this doesn't even get into, you know, vast issues around socioeconomic diversity within the profession, gender diversity within the profession, racial diversity within the profession, which also causes a lot of, I think, representation and confidence issues for a lot of reasons. But this idea of the insecure overachiever really is born out of always feeling as though there is more to do and you will never reach the point of, okay, this is good enough. I am good enough and I can go out there and and present this. And I think, you know, what entrepreneurs do really well, sometimes too well, is that they're incredibly good at, you know, the art of bullshit, but also they're incredibly good at selling their ideas, regardless of how well-baked or how good they are. And I think architecture school does a great job of creating people who have really good ideas, but have no idea how to talk about them to people who are not architects in a confident and convincing way. Absolutely. And so you're talking about, you're bringing up a few points again, we never talk about the books linear, but you're talking about a lot of points in the the, specific, the second section of the book, though. Why, why is the profession like this? And so I know you could probably talk all day about some of the failings of the industry and some or the problems, but you, know, you, t- you bring up the idea of the architect in awe. And so one cons again, there's quite a few, and you talked about the insecure overachiever, but I was wondering if you could talk more about, and I'm going to take the, t- the chapter title, the imploding teams. Uh, it's interesting because I think many people do feel burnout. Many people do understand that there's issues in architecture, but I guess it's not fair to say that it's hard to trace back to the point. But to me, out of all your concepts, I feel like this bad team management at a firm seems to be a big part of it. And again, I hope I'm not over oversimplifying it, but could you talk about the struggles that the profession has about that? Absolutely. I think, you know, if I 
take a stab at <laughs> simplifying this chapter into a few uh, a few key points. I mean, the notion of imploding teams is that you know architecture is not built like a traditional company. Architecture is kind of an an artistic collective, and when you go into an architecture firm, everyone's an architect. You know, almost always the HR person is an architect. Almost always the person who runs the books, at least at first, is an architect. And you have this strange do-it-all mentality. That also extends to leadership. And if you look across, you know, a huge variety of companies, um, you know, and and in larger corporations and, and more, I would say, traditionally successful profit-driven businesses, very many teams have a person whose job it is to lead that team. That person is responsible for people management. They're responsible for coaching, promotions, having hard conversations, managing performance. In an architecture firm, that is all expected out of a project architect, out of a principal, out of a partner, people who are also responsible for getting the work, who are responsible for doing the work, leading the design. In architecture, when you start, one of the things that's most commonly said is, you know, well, you're not really useful for the first five years, or, you know, it's going to take you 20 years before you really get to design a building, before you get to lead the design right here at the firm. And by the time you get to that stage, in most companies, you're leading a team, right? You're either at a specialist, you're, you're a senior expert, or you're a manager, you know, you're a director, you're a VP who's coaching, organizing, being more strategic overall. And I think the notion that architecture teams don't perform well, aren't cohesive, is because everybody is focused on their own piece of the work. You know, I mean, it's, all too common for young architects to start, you know, they're working under a project architect, that project architect doesn't have time, they're working 60 hours a week already, you know, and around critical times, I wouldn't be shocked at 80 hours. How are you supposed to have time to sit down and explain to someone what a successful construction document set looks like what a successful corner detail is help them learn how to put all these pieces together and to transfer your knowledge when you're expected to do everything i think at the core of an imploding team is the fact that well i was treated this way so i'm going to treat you this way you know no one helped me i'm not going to help you and that cycle that we've built um you know the the comment that I made earlier about the story about the manager who had said, you know, oh, this person, you know, is going to shoot up the office. That's a horrendous thing to say, you know, and but it comes from at the core. And if you read these narratives, you'll see that it's, you know, someone asking for help, asking for communication, feeling like they're asking too many questions. And that's not the norm in the office, but there's nowhere to go. You know, there's nowhere to go to ask those questions. And ultimately, that's what causes this volatility, you know, is, well, you know, there's no oversight to that manager. So not only can they treat their team however they'd like, they can do whatever they'd like. They're not being measured on their people management performance. They're being measured on their drawings. 
you know, and their output. So who cares how they manage their team? And that is a that is a terrible way to run a business. And it's 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 pretty much the architectural firm model, you know, until you get to the scale of, let's say, you know, uh, a Gensler. And at that point, you know, you're you're in a different kind of company, really. Yeah, I would just add briefly that, you know, Jake and Jake danced around this a little bit or didn't say it explicitly, like we're promoted oftentimes in architecture firms on your design ability, not on your management ability. And we're not taught how to be managers. We're not taught very well how to project manage even in school. It's left up to you, right? The all-nighters are a great example of how awful most architects are at project management. Um, so you're just, you're promoted on your ability to design, not on your ability to manage. And those are inherently different skill sets. That doesn't mean good designers can't be good managers, but one does not necessarily imply the other. Absolutely. And I you also talk about, again, I'm going to paraphrase someone entering a firm without the knowledge of that structure you know, an intern architect may think they have seven different bosses, the junior architect, project architect, manager, it's principal, et cetera. The informal roles kind of, we'll call it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things we often find really interesting with some of our clients is actually unpacking a job description with them because the ones that float around in architecture are just so, you know, non-comprehensive. Um, if you look at a job description for, you know, a large, a large company, even frankly, a not so large company, even startups now have very specific job descriptions that speak to what you'll be doing, what your day to day is supposed to be like, the overall strat strategic positioning of your position, the the tactical approach of your position, who you report to, you know, there, that is usually very spelled out. I remember my first day um, at an office in New York, not my first job out of school, a different one, um, was the day a competition was due, or sorry, a day we had a deadline. And I was there until midnight running back and forth, helping a team that I had just met and still not being introduced to who was in charge. Uh, yeah, and again, you you both talk about the different case studies, and unfortunately, we just wouldn't be able to unpack them. All. I think they're they're great to see some personal experience, and I'm thinking anyone who reads it who's been in their career can probably relate, probably to the newbie or the questioner, particularly the principal. So again, I would love to talk all day about everything, but there's one thing I think is worth mentioning, and that is I think many industries have issues with burnout and retention. But I don't think many have the same issue that this, money isn't everything, but sometimes money can help. And again, you you always hear mixed results. Some say architects are well paid. Some say architects are not paid. And I guess I think you talk about it very well in the book that I think architecture is unique in having a psychological component to how you're paid, if that makes sense. Yeah, we call it psychic income. Right. <laughs> and so, again, I know that's an overarching question. Can you... Again, talk about the fact that probably not in many other industries, people may not think that they need to ask for more money where I don't think many other industries deal with that. I think one of the places that we address this in the book um, is in this idea of, you know, unpacking the word professional, right? And that as, uh, you know, an architect, you're, you're taught to bow at the altar of architecture, right? And very much in a religious manner to, you know, see architecture as a kind of faith profession that you, you know, your ultimate 
desires, your goals can be resolved in the completion of, uh, you know, yet to be seen perfect design resolution. And it's true. I mean, I get the warm fuzzies when I see a beautiful piece of design. Yes, absolutely. Does that fulfill everything in Maslow's hierarchy of needs? No, it absolutely does not. You know, warm fuzzies do not put a roof over your head. They do not cover the bills. And those stressors add up in numerous ways. And one of the most common pieces of burnout we see is people who have sacrificed for that feeling of, you know, design fulfillment and ignored the fact that, you know, they're living in the most expensive city in the world or, you know, making less than a bus driver, which I will just tell you here, Portland, Oregon, $27 an hour for a bus driver. That's about $54,000 a year. Design intern salaries, 42, 46,000. So, I'm not saying that bus drivers aren't valuable, but I am saying that as a professional who's spent a half a million dollars on your degree, 200,000, whatever that might be, I believe that you know you should be making uh, the same as someone who requires very little training. One of the ways that we could think to resolve that in architecture is to really think about the value of individual specialties. And I know that money isn't everything. But I also think that money is an indication of a sort of appreciation often. And I do think that when people pay you well, they're allowed to expect a lot out of you. And in, you know, in a similar vein, when we're paid well, not only can we use that money to do really interesting things, you know, it becomes a tool to exercise creativity in other ways. Um, you know, for example, Aaron and I have, you know, bootstrapped this business and this book and all of these other elements because we were able to, you know, work really hard and, and show our value both to our clients and also elsewhere in our careers. Uh, I think that that has been a, a really incredible thing that is the result of having, you know, more financial stability. Ultimately, though, I do think architects could diversify, you know, not only could they start to bring in people from other industries, which yes, might require paying more and charging more. But ultimately, what that would do is it would show, you know, areas where architects can contribute very specifically, as opposed to more generally, right, and we'd start to lose these okay, this architect does every single thing. And maybe there is someone whose job it is to kind of horizontally manage the hierarchy of a team, right? Maybe we are bringing in just like they would in, you know, a tech team, you have a product designer, you have a product owner, product manager, right? And ultimately, all of these people work together to do separate yet similar pieces of you know, the completion of a piece of software. I think that building design should be a little bit more, mm, a little bit more specialized and a little less generalized because, you know, it takes 30 years to learn all the pieces, how to make a building. And by that time, it's really hard to, to advocate for your value. It's really hard to turn around and say, well, I've got 10 more years or, or 20 or maybe five. And now what, you know, now that I know everything, what do I do? 
Yeah, I mean, I would also just add that, look, for the longest time, the history of this profession, we didn't have to define our value. You know, we came from a gentrified class. The popes paid for our projects um, and likely our livelihood. And it wasn't something that needed to be treated as a business. But that's just not that's just not the economy today. It's not the world today. And the way we're integrated into society, I think we're just systemically undervaluing ourselves. Jake and I are actually working on a piece right now um, with the Architects newspaper about this because, I mean, teach teach students in architecture school how to manage, teach them basic business principles. That's what doctors get when they're training to become doctors. Lawyers get an understanding of, of how, to, how to practice ethically and sustainably. And both of those specialties, for the most part, aside from their pro bono work, or both of those professions, I apologize, um, have no problem charging for their value and people don't have a problem paying for them. The construction industry is just a large pool of money that moves around. Architects are just unable to advocate for why they are a valuable contributor to that. And it's frankly just getting worse. Thank you both so much for that. And so again, I'd love to take you all day and talk with you about it. But as we wrap up, I guess you sort of hinted at this. My, my usually ending question is now that the book has been finished, what's, what is your next project? What has been taking up your time now? Oh, um, well, it is it is a business first and foremost, and I think what Jake and I have tried to do now is expand the ways that we can we can really turn this into a community and not just a a career consultancy. Although it, it is very much still at its core, that we've brought on a bunch of new advisors. Um, we're excited that people have come to us to to want to talk about some of the ideas we we put forth in the book, and and also just on you know current events. I think that's always validating. Um, we've got a couple of projects that are going to focus around expanding what we did in the book to maybe more of a, a toolkit. So working on a, a physical product that you know that could address that and. and could help people. And I think also committed to seeing where this goes when it's not just Jake and I, as you mentioned, we're a team of 10 now, which is bonkers to me, um, but completely awesome. And with that comes a lot of different experiences and a lot of different ideas. So for us, it's, it's trying to shepherd, you know, what is the next five years of out of a look at out of architecture look like now that we've got five years behind us. And Honestly, we're we're pretty excited by that. Um, when we have enough time to slow down and catch our breath. Uh-huh. Well, great. Thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been our absolute pleasure, Brian. And to everyone listening, the book is out of architecture. And uh, Jake, you had mentioned that unfortunately they can't see us talking about the graphics, but you had mentioned that there is a resource for them to see the graphics in the book. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that Aaron and I really enjoyed in putting together the book was uh, we got to doodle a lot. And uh, I think as any architect listening to this will understand, uh, you know, it feels really good to get ideas down in a sort of simplified, you know, clear graphic sense. And uh, so each of the chapter headers has been turned into a a graphic, you know, we have some some insertions. We talked about the breakdown of the word professional as an example. And if you want to see those, you are very welcome to go to our website, www.outofarchitecture.com forward slash audiobook. And you'll be able to see all the graphics from the book, as well as some of the uh, chapter titles and the resources that we used uh, in our index. Great. Thank you very much. And again, for everyone listening, thank you and have a great day.